One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm Claire Hubble, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, as Moscow launches yet more strikes in Kyiv and Kharkiv, we discuss suggestions by Ukraine's top commander that Russia is plotting another offensive in Kyiv. Plus, senior correspondent Roland Oliphant recalls his interview with Aidan Aslin, a dual British and Ukrainian volunteer Marine who was captured by Russian forces while fighting in Mariupol. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Putin's war in Ukraine has destabilized energy markets the world over. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday, the 16th of December, day 296. And today, I'm joined by Associate Editor Dominic Nichols, Assistant Comment Editor Francis Dernley and Senior Foreign Correspondent Roland Oliphant. I started by asking Dom for the latest updates from the front line. Yeah, well, hi, Claire. Hi, everybody. So an interesting article in The Economist, which I know France is going to talk more about later. This is an interview uh, by my friend and colleague Shashank Joshi with General Valery Zaluzny, Ukraine's commander in chief of the armed forces. He's talking about he's saying Russia is preparing a large scale offensive uh, to push into into Ukraine. Now, you might say, well, of course, he, he would say that, wouldn't he? But I mean, you know, this guy doesn't doesn't choose his words lightly. Um, he said that any attack is in February, at best in March, at the worst at the end of January. He said that uh, Putin's mobilisation drive has worked, quote unquote, has worked. And Russia are now reconstituting its troops to overturn the embarrassing defeats earlier in the summer and gain more territory. And he says they are 100 percent being prepared. I have no doubt they will have another go at Kiev. Now, I mean, France is going to talk more about this later. And we talked briefly yesterday about Belarus. Um, but just just to mention, I mean, where... How can they get to Kiev? Basically, what are they? What are they trying to do? It didn't work last time. Are they going to learn their lessons from that that episode? Yeah, possibly. I mean, as I've said many, many times before, this Russian military force is not one that demonstrates all the uh, all the things you need to be a learning organisation. There's no no suggestion that they're that they're looking back at what's gone right, what's gone wrong, and, and adjusting their processes accordingly. So, you know, how would they try and uh, try and take? Kiev, it would probably involve some sort of drive from the north, which involves Belarus. As we know, Belarus is trying to carve out a little bit of wiggle room between Lukashenko and Putin, just to just to not go absolutely all in. Although Russia did, 
did a launch attack from Belarus. They're launching aircraft and missiles and doing a lot of lot of training in uh, in the country. But you know, I mean, there are limited routes of advance from the north. There's a lot of a lot of uh, wooded areas, so you're, you're naturally sort of channeled down onto onto the roads. There's uh, there's the, the Chernobyl, for example, the area you shouldn't be messing around in there. Um, so limited routes of advance. You're going to have exposed flanks. You're going to have the same logistic problems that Russia experienced in the first few weeks of the war, and are they going to try and drive into Kiev? Might they trust be trying to push forward? in order to establish a kind of lodgment to bring their artillery forward to, to threaten Kiev. Um, they themselves would be very risky. That's a risky move. Any any artillery that is pushed forward, they are then going to become priority targets to get whacked. So, you know, this talk is very, very easy for Russia to imply, oh yeah, come next year, we're going to be we're going to be pushing from Belarus. It is right, I think, for General Zaluzny to, to say that he's not discounting anything. Um, but it is a it is a massive undertaking to to attack any country but to, to to launch from the north in this in this guise they've tried it before and guess what you know ukraine's not been sitting on its hands for the last 10 months i mean they've been preparing they're holding forces at readiness into the north we thought that was i still think that's actually one of the main reasons why there's all this activity in belarus because because ukraine have to keep forces there just in case and maybe just in case is is good enough for Russia just to hold down some of these forces because actually you know they didn't do it well last time they haven't shown any great ability to to learn and and uh, and put into practice any methodology that would work and and of course as, as I said it's very very limited geography to push in from the north so do go and have a look at that France is going to talk more about that in a minute um, but I'm 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 doubtful I have to say of any successful push for the north. And the only other thing I'll say is that uh, I had a very interesting interview this morning. I interviewed um, Admiral Sir Tony Radikin, the, the head of Britain's armed forces, chief of the defence staff here. Article coming out on Sunday in the paper. I'm going to try and get some stuff for, for Poddy um, Monday. And um, and we did it on camera, so it'll be on, on our YouTube and on our uh, website as well. But but he was interested. He was, he was always an interesting guy to speak to. He's actually just been sanctioned this week by Iran. Um and I asked his, if his if his lack of being sanctioned by Russia, uh, which in and of itself is a message, does that allow for back channel communications or to conversations to to happen? And he said that when he met General uh, Valery uh, Gerasimov, who's the head of Russia's armed forces, this was about ten days. I went with him actually, and the chief and um, the defense secretary to Moscow about ten days before this phase of the invasion, so you know, right early early Feb this year. Um, he and Gerasimov then said that they would need to keep those channels open. Um, and he said Gerasimov has been very good at adhering to that, i.e. keeping the channels open and not talking about what is what has been discussed. And he said he likewise has, has adhered to that deal. He said he would like more uh, more communication, more regular communication, and the discussions to be stronger. Um, but they are having difficult conversations. So it's good that that channel is open. Whether or not that would close if Tony Radican was sanctioned by um, by Russia is a moot point. I mean, you know, he's not planning on going holiday there. Um, but interesting point nonetheless. But he said on the back of that that he has been he's been sanctioned by by Iran. And I asked him, I said, well, you know, that's clearly no fatwa. There is a, there is a difference clearly. But uh, does it make does it make a big a big difference to him? And he said, well, well, no. That all the sensible usual security precautions were put in place they did have a look at his personal security as, as they always do but um but no massive uh, no massive change there's not planning to visit tehran anytime soon um but we talked uh, also about 
uh, Britain's support for Ukraine and the and the wider international support. And um, I asked him about Midgate. You might remember Midgate from early on in the war. This suggestion that the U.S. put the kibosh on Poland supplying MiG-29s to to Ukraine. It was deemed at the time too escalatory. That that nature of equipment was just too provocative, too offensive rather than defensive. Um, and I said, but now we've got High Mars, Nasams, Patriot going in. Um, has the calculus shifted at all? And he said, well, not really. He said the balance on on gifting of military aid is still very much on the side of defensive weapons, um, air defence, and so on and so forth. I mean, High Mars clearly isn't a defensive weapon, but but that was a bit of an outlier. And he said that the whole the, the thing is that there's a there's this very intricate international lattice work of support, and you've just got to be very gentle with it. You can't you know, sort of suddenly lurch and say, right, let's send uh, let's send F-16s or T-70, uh, you know. Um, or MiG-29s or, or what have you, because you've got to take everyone with you. The one thing that Putin does want, of course, is is a fracturing in this international uh, alliance, you know, very small a alliance against um, against Russia. So you got to you got to move slowly and take and take everyone with you. Um, and if, he said, if you go out far too strongly, then it could be uncomfortable for Nation X, and you might start to fracture your international unity, as 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 we know. Um, so it's very interesting this this these dynamics that are happening and how. Some natures of ammunition and, and equipment might be deemed sort of more offensive, more defensive. What, what's the political mood music at the time? What's happening elsewhere? How do you respond um, in relation to what Russia's doing? It's a it's a very delicate patchwork, which I think, on balance, we should say over the last ten months, ten months, I think I think it's probably been handled fairly well. There's been a, a few a few episodes, but I think it's uh, it was a bit of a snapshot into into what's happening constantly happening behind the scenes these contact groups these um, these discussions going on at senior military and political level about support for ukraine but um i mean the interview went on for about an hour and a quarter so yeah, much much more of that have a listen have a watch on sunday if you like and uh, hopefully we'll get a bit of uh, a bit of audio for monday but um i need to take a pause there and i understand there have been some more missile strikes on ukraine this morning what can you tell us about those yeah so this again uh, general zeluzny head of Ukraine's armed forces. He said that there were 76 missile uh, missiles fired at Ukraine this morning on Friday. 72 cruise missiles, four uh, for air missiles, um, and saying that Ukraine air defence systems shot down 60. Now this continues the pattern we've seen of late: the, the pattern of Russia firing missiles at Ukraine's critical national infrastructure. Also, the pattern of Ukraine managing to shoot down most of them. Um, as air defence systems have gone in and increasingly gone in in the in the on the less sophisticated end of the of the of the uh, equipment ledger, if you like, which is good. You know, I'm thinking things like the Gepard, the German self-propelled gun with twin 35 mil cannons to, that chucks a load of uh, lead in the sky. I mean, that's what you need. You don't want to be firing massively expensive anti-air missiles at these uh, at these things. You just your economy can't stand that so 60 out of 76 shot down is a is a is a good result i would suggest however obviously those other 16 do land somewhere and obviously all the debris land land somewhere so there's still this very pressing need for uh, for air defense um, to be supplied to to ukraine but i mean on simple economics that is not you know nobody should be carrying on that kind of campaign if you are having the vast majority of your of your um effort shot down i mean that just that shows that you've got something badly wrong your tactics or the technology or the engineering or god knows how how you're doing but you should not continue this 
this is all Russia can do at the moment. They're, they're, they're being pushed back on the battlefield. This is all they've got left in their military locker. Um, and so whilst, of course, it's terrible, and as I say, those other 16 missiles would have landed somewhere, um, then I think Ukraine will say, well, hey, you know, we can, we can stand this at the moment as long as the supplies continue. Thank you for that, Dom. Moving away from the military space into the political sphere, Francis, what's been happening for the last 24 hours? Well, thanks, Claire, and good afternoon to our listeners around the world. Yes, it's been another eventful 24 hours. I know I keep saying that recently, but it really has been. I think it's most important to start with the news that we've gotten through this morning around Belarus, which, of course, Dom was already talking about. We understand that Vladimir Putin will visit Belarus on Monday for talks with his counterpart and ally, Alexander Lukashenko. That's according to the Kremlin. They've announced that the pair will discuss Russian-Belarusian integration as well as current topics on the international and regional agenda. I think we can guess what those are. Visit comes 10 months into Russia's offensive in Ukraine, of course. And one of the, as, as Don was talking about, one of the main directions that it came from was Belarusian territory and in the context of the interview that Don was talking about which I'll go into more detail later I think there will be some concern in Kyiv that one of the main conversations that may be taking place between the two of them relates to potentially a resumed offensive from the Belarusian border which would come of course given the, the geography of this would potentially uh, threaten Kyiv. Um, it, it's also, I think it has to, it's important to emphasise that Moscow and Minsk, have com- uh, and Minsk have committed to a range of programmes for deeper economic and defence cooperation already. So whilst we talk a lot on this podcast about the way in which Europe has unified as a consequence of Ukraine in many areas, I think it's important to say that there are, of course, outliers as well, and that um, uh, Belarus is often described as having the last dictatorship in Europe. And indeed, we are seeing a closer alignment with uh, with Russia and Belarus as a consequence of this war, as we've seen with Russia and North Korea and other places. But of course, it hasn't all been going Russia's way with its former uh, territories. Uh, it's the stands, as James Kilner has talked about, have become very, very unstable as a consequence of what's going on in Ukraine. And so uh, this is, I think, just one small success in inverted commas story for Russia, um, whereas actually it's been a disaster in the diplomatic space in almost every other area. Uh, just staying with the Kremlin Uh, The Kremlin have said that they're going to respond to EU sanctions against Russia. Obviously, I've spoken a lot in recent days about the nature of these sanctions. The EU uh, leaders agreed yesterday to provide 18 billion euros in financing to Ukraine next year and to hit Moscow with a ninth package of sanctions. Measures will also uh, designate nearly 200 more people and bar investment in Russia's mining industry, among other steps. Now, they haven't said what their response is going to be, and I would argue that their response is actually going to be very limited given the the capacity that they have but nonetheless they said that there will be a response and uh, sticking with the the political sphere in Russia I touched on yesterday the speculation that uh, the the Russian Duma was going to make it uh, effectively um, for for crimes committed in annexed territory in Ukraine not to be punishable by law and I said it was a speculation we're now hearing it confirmed that there was a first reading of a bill that said that any offences committed in Donetsk, Luhansk, Aparija and Herzon uh, before the Ukrainian regions were annexed will not be considered a crime punishable by law if they are deemed to have been in the interest of the Russian Federation. Now I think it's important to emphasise here that as shocking as this is and it is shocking it's not unexpected or unsurprising 
amazing. There's already been a lot of um, legal laws that have been passed as a consequence of what's going on in Ukraine. And I just wanted to draw attention as well to the fact that there are quite prominent lawyers in Russia, indeed liberal lawyers like uh, Mikhail Benyash, who's lashed out at this amendment. He's called it absolutely horrific. And I'll quote for him directly or from his Telegram channel. First, this has nothing to do with the law. Second, it leaves massive room for corruption. Third, it puts Russia in a precarious position, as this country will be effectively saying, you're free to commit any crimes in my favour, and I'm going to forgive it all. This is madness. Other uh, leading Russian uh, legal figures have said in a publication that they're they're going to review the bill. They've lambasted it in its current frame. They've said that offering to set up a legal framework of the Wild West or even in the Middle Ages is absurd. So, as I say, very strong rhetoric from some of these Russian lawyers. And it has to be said they're very brave in, in, in saying this because, we, as I say, we know what the consequences can be. And just staying on that legal point, as I say earlier, courts in the occupied regions have been banned from using juries on any court cases until at least 2027. Now, again, one can uh, guess why the case, that's that's the case lastly just moving away at last from the kremlin and back into the european fold uh, quite an interesting story this and uh, as I say i think it's to be commended the danes have sacrificed a bank holiday to boost defense spending so denmark's new government have said that it will scrap a certain bank holiday to generate more funding uh, as european states resort to of course increasingly unusual methods of facing off against russia uh, in, I know we haven't talked about Denmark a lot recently. There's a rather unusual coalition of, sort of centre-left and centre-right at the moment. And the Prime Minister has said that he will remove one of 11 bank holidays in Denmark to boost the economy and productivity and to help uh, increase GDP spending of 2% on defence, which of course is what is expected for um, countries in NATO. So an interesting story uh, here and one that's sort of not really been very widely reported. But as I say, it's, it's rather commendable. So something a little bit more perhaps uplifting in which to end on in the political realm. Just what, going back to what you were saying about the Russian state Duma forgiving certain offences committed in the interest of the Russian State Federation, do we have any examples of the sorts of crimes they're referring to? I think we can speculate as to what this is being done to stop in terms of legal cases. And it is the kind of crimes that I spoke about yesterday and which Joe Barnes reported on. And of course, David, when he was there in Ukraine with Dom, which are the kind of atrocities committed in Butcher. This is an attempt to uh, stall any beginnings of legal processes to bring those people to account. And I think as well that there will be numerous other atrocities that we're not even aware of yet. Think of some of those um, mass graveyards found around Izium, um, I think others in uh, Maritopol, Mariupol as well that we hear about. These are the kind of things that there'll be other butchers that are under that are as yet to be reported. And this is an attempt by the Kremlin to stall any legal investigations into these within the Russian state itself. So that's what I, I think this is all for, really. Thanks for that, Francis. Um, I'd like to bring in Roland Oliphant now. Roland, yesterday you interviewed Aidan Aslim. What can you tell us about the conversation the two of you had? Yeah, so this week I've, I've, I went up to um, to Nottinghamshire to see uh, to see Aidan Aidan Aslin. To recap, he's, he's a British volunteer who joined the Ukrainian Marines well before the war. I mean, he, he was he was living and working in Ukraine for for several years before the war began. He was an enlisted man in the Ukrainian military um, when the war began. I met him about a week and a half before this invasion. Because he was he was with a, a unit called the Thirty Sixth 
Marine Brigade. Part of their job was defending Mariupol, um, and he was he was in this unit that was holding that 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 long static front line, kind of on the plains northeast of Mariupol. And and that if you if you think back, you'll remember this period when this kind of phony war period where the Brits and the Americans were saying this is going to happen. The Ukrainians were publicly saying, oh, we're not sure about it. The Kremlin was denying it. And Ukraine was just full of journalists like me kind of running around trying to work out what the hell was going on. So we, we, we went down to Mariupol about, you know, a week and a half before the war. Um, one of the things I did was, was, was link up with Aiden and have a very interesting chat with him about kind of, you know, how he felt about the, you know, the coming storm, really which is quite an interesting conversation. Then, of course, the war began. We lost contact. He became encircled in, uh, trapped in Mariupol in the encirclement um, as the Marines were forced back. Um, in April, his unit was basically forced to surrender when they ran out of ammunition and food. And he spent about, I think, about five months in Russian captivity before he was uh, released in this prison swap in September. Um, so he's been back in the UK a couple of months. He's kind of getting used to getting used to being in Britain again um, and things like that. So we, we had a very nice chat, a kind of catch up and, and able to, a, an opportunity to kind of reflect on, on, on what he'd been through, um, which was fascinating. We will have him on uh, the podcast, maybe, maybe next week or something, telling his own words. But um, the things that stood out for me was, for one thing, I think he's borne it very well. Definitely a, a remarkable ability to kind of be philosophical about things um, and kind of, Look, look at his ordeal very thoughtfully. His ordeal was, was was pretty awful. So, so what happened? First of all, he was he was a a witness to the Battle of Mariupol, which which was interesting. He described how um, at the beginning of the war, on on day one of the war, um, when they were manning these these trench systems, you know, they realised what was going on at about you know two in the morning um, when they start hearing grad rockets going off, which was unusual. By four a.m., they're told to man their mortar. He was on a mortar team. And, you know, they, they fire off a bunch of rounds, um, then they have to take cover. And just as they're taking cover, a grad strike comes in, but it misses. And then they realize, OK, th- th- this is the big thing. It's it's all on. One of the interesting things that stood out there to me was he said before the war, he was really worried about Russian counter battery fire. Um, he kind of thought, like many of us did, that, OK, these positions, the Russians are going to have their artillery zeroed in. As soon as like the balloon goes up, we're just going to get flattened. And because he was in a mortar unit, that he, you know, the Russians would very quickly answer them and, and they'd be wiped out. He said, in those, this kind of fighting retreat from that first day back into Mariupol over that first week, he said the Russians never managed to pinpoint his mortar. That it actually turned out that, you know, their artillery was very, very powerful, but but not at all accurate. So from the very beginning, you know, you can see this this problem with what the Russians are up to. And then he talked about the siege in, Mari- in Mariupol. You've heard about the Azov style. Azov style became you know, the very famous last stand of, of, of the last defenders of, of Mariupol. There is another steelworks in Mariupol called Illich Stahl. That's where the, the 36th ended up. Um, and the, the distinction between Azov Stahl and Illich Stahl is really, well, Azov Stahl, number one, is on the south side of the city and it backs onto the sea. So you could be surrounded on three sides, but the fourth side and I think we now was, was was much more difficult for the Russians to surround. And I think we now know that the Ukrainians were managing to get kind of very daring helicopter supplies in there. Ilich Stahl is further north on the northern side of the city. 
so it could be surrounded on all sides. And also it has much shallower bunkers than Azov Stahl. Um, so Azov Stahl had these remarkable kind of 40 meter deep tunnels, um, which the Russians found it very difficult to weed out those defenders from for months and months. Illich didn't have that. Um, so he, de- he described this battle, the Russians surround the city, the sense of a really demoralizing sense when the guys realize we're surrounded and in other parts of Ukraine where our families are, um, there's also Russians kind of storming into cities. Um, he said that, that that was where things got personal for him. Uh, that, that was the only time I saw him kind of really feel quite, um, you know, he, he was clearly shaken by this because his fiance was over in Mikolaev and while he was in Mariupol, the Russians got, I think, to within about a kilometer of, of her house. And then he described being, you know, basically being forced to surrender because a, a Russian bomb hit their ammunition, essentially. They were left without food, without ammunition, um, after about six weeks, I think, and into captivity. Yeah, so, I mean, so, so this, is, this is a very, a very interesting... I'm going to pause at that point because then he starts, talk, he starts talking to me about his ordeal as a prisoner, which I think is fascinating in itself. But, but he did talk about this, you know, being there in Mariupol and being told okay, we're surrounded now, there's no way out. Um, and then he looked back and it's, there's a little bit of confusion, medical evacuations were still happening, supplies were getting in somehow. And he said, he said, in that first week or so, it probably was possible to break out, but the decision was taken, like we have to defend Mariupol. Um, a decision was taken not to break out, to, to, to hold the city, to fight a siege. And he described kind of coming to terms with the, like realizing that, you know, this is going to end with me being captured or killed and 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 he could see from the um the kind of commanding position of where they were you know he, they first saw the russians coming coming from the west from crimea and and seeing them link up and from, from with the, with the spearhead from the east knowing that they're surrounded um and just being pounded pounded with artillery and he was talking you know being being stuck in these bunkers with shock waves kind of slamming doors shut and, and, you know, things falling off the ceiling and, uh, you know, kind of feeling hopeless. And then, you know, food, food reduced to the point. One of the things he said, you know, we ran out of food. And then I realized we ended up like scrounging around trying to find what there was. And he said, I remembered seeing some, you know, some MREs upstairs. But it was at the point where you couldn't really go upstairs because the shelling was so intense. But I waited for a gap, went and got some, came back, um, one of his female comrades spotted him said hold on where did you get that he said well up there you know do you want to risk it they go back and get it and straight away they come under fire really really stressful kind of awful terrifying stuff um and then he took he you know he described how there was discussion of a breakout there were preparations for a breakout um he described using the whatever there was in the steelworks to kind of improvise armor onto vehicles um, and, and preparing a stockpile of weapons so they could be loaded quickly. And then for whatever reason, it was cancelled, and then a Russian bomb hit that stockpile of weapons. Um, they were left without food, without ammunition, and the, the decision was made basically to surrender, and a, a large number of troops surrendered. A small number broke out to Azov Stalin and fought with, with Azov Regiment for some months more, but that was when he, he went into captivity. And I will take a break there. Yeah, thank you, Roland. I'm sorry to press you on, but I feel like we can't just leave it there. What did Aidan tell you about his time as a prisoner? So he said, um, 
I mean, pretty quickly, they they work out who he is because he has um, Aiden is on uh, on on Instagram and Twitter is Cossack Gundy. I'd encourage anybody to who's interested in Ukraine to follow him. He 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 already had quite a big social media following before the war. Um, so he was not only was he um, a foreign fighter and therefore in the eyes of the Russians, quote unquote, a mercenary, although he absolutely was not a mercenary. He was an enlisted regular soldier in the Ukrainian armed forces. That That's a really important point to make because that becomes relevant later. He, he was he was prominent. He was not only a foreigner and a Briton, he was prominent. And the, the moment he was, you know, they, they found out he was a Brit, he describes being punched in the face. And he described in very vivid detail remarkable total recall with his first kind of 24 48 hours in captivity of just kind of repeated beatings and then being taken somewhere else and then beaten and then taken for an interrogation and systematically beaten um and he, he described one particular interrogation in donetsk where this this particular man he talked about who was just just pounding him with a police baton you know all over his body um, for hours and hours and then eventually this guy kind of stops the beating and lights a cigarette and starts kind of rambling and you know asks him if he believes in god and if he's religious and 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 nathan said just aiden will, will tell you this in his own words i hope but um he, t- he told me you know and then um i said well i'm protestant and the guy started you know telling me that well, you're not a real Christian because only, you know, Russian orthodoxy is, is the real Christianity and, and all of this stuff. And then the guy goes, oh, and did you see what I did to you? And Aiden said, I had no idea what he was talking about. And he turned around and he, and he realized at that moment that there was blood pouring out of his shoulder blade and that the guy had sometime during this massive beating, one of those blows was a knife being thrust into his shoulder. You know, the adrenaline, the fear, all of that, he hadn't necessarily noticed it. Um, uh, you know, an, an absolute, absolute horrific kind of ordeal. And then moved, um, so that, you know, they moved around a bit and then he gets used a lot for propaganda because of his social media profile. Um, because probably because a lot of us, a lot of the, the media had, you know, written about these British soldiers and he was the one who had, who'd given quite a lot of interviews to us, to Sky News. And he, he, he told me, I think he said it was when he was when he realized he was stabbed he told you know he described this moment where he said he told himself right i'm going into survival mode now i know i've just got to tell them what they want to hear if i'm going to stay alive so i'm going to do it um and and you all remember a series of videos released of, of quote-unquote interviews um with him where he's saying things like yeah you know i was i was i was mistaken and misled you know by the Ukrainians and all of this and, and kind of repudiating all of his previously held beliefs um, and, and speaking to their propaganda because uh, in his words, he knew what they wanted to say him to say and he knew he didn't have a choice. And usually during these talks, that same guy who, who beat the living daylights out of him and stabbed him was, was in the room. Um, and one of those interviews included Graham Phillips, the, um, the fairly notorious um, self-styled British blogger um, who has had his uh, had his assets frozen in Britain actually as, as a result of his activities. And this this, this, this to me was a particularly a particularly alarming incident um, because 
if you watch that interview, Graham Phillips comes in, talks to him, and says to says to Aidan, like, just to be clear, as we're starting this interview, you're you're speaking of your own free will. And Aidan in the video says, Yeah, 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 of course. I mean, like, I asked for this, you know, absolutely. No, I mean, I'm not being pressured at all. He's literally sitting there wearing handcuffs at the time. Um <laughs> in the video. And and then Graham says, Oh, and like just to be clear, like, because you're a mercenary you're not protected under the Geneva Convention, you're not legal competent, and therefore there's nothing to stop you being executed or something like that, is implication. I mean, that is, A, that's a complete falsehood. It's a lie, straight up. It's completely misleading. But B, that create that, that was a narrative that the so-called Donetsk People's Republic later used to put um, Aidan and Sean Pinner and one of their Moroccan comrades on trial, accusing them of being quote-unquote mercenaries and illegal competence, and then sentencing them to death. So that particular interview, that, that that particular interview, kind of stands out to me as, you know, a real, an act of intimidation, an act of really cynical propaganda, but also something that was setting people up to potentially be killed. And of course, Aiden told me, like, yeah, well, I said in that interview that you know, yeah, I asked for it. Actually, no, I didn't. I was like taken out of the cell. I wasn't told where I was going. I was put into a room. And then, you know, <laughs> this guy comes in. I had no idea. I wasn't expecting it. I knew who he was. And in the room at the time, as usual, there was this, this same thug who had, who had, you know, given Aiden this, this particularly nasty beating at the beginning of his captivity. So he, he, he went through a lot of that. Um, there was a lot of hauling him into to, to various interviews. A, a lot of beatings um, carried on. He talks about being moved to another prison uh, where the food gets better. There's two other things that kind of stand out. He talked about what happened when the guys from Azov Style started arriving. So the Illich Style plant surrendered in April. Um, Azov Style held out till about June or something. He said, listen, when were you taken to this prison... A new arrivals, all new arrivals were forced to run a gauntlet, basically. So to get to your cell, you had to kind of walk or crawl um, through the corridors of the prison while being beaten up by loads of people passing. And he said it took him 10 minutes to get to his cell while this, you know, through this, this horrific ordeal when he arrived. And then when the Azov guys arrived, you know, the, the Russians really took the gloves off, I suppose is the word. He said, he said it took them half an hour to reach the cell. Um, they put one in his cell and this guy was singled out for, I mean, what he described was just absolutely horrific, you know, kind of the most vicious beatings, like forcing this guy's legs apart and beating him on the testicles, like forcing him to put his hand down flat on a hard surface and, and beating it with, with a police baton. So probably breaking his hand, then telling the guy, we're going to do this to you every day for 60 days. Like, absolutely horrific stuff. And then he described hearing that happening in the, in the next door cell, kind of exactly the same kind of thing. You could hear it through the wall. And that guy died, and you could hear the guy dying. And you could hear his cellmates banging on the door to get assistance from the guards and talking about how he stopped breathing. And you know, he, he was telling me about how you know, literally hearing someone being beaten to death in the cell next door and how that just sends a, sends a chill through you. Um, so he, he's going through all of this. It's, it's absolutely constant. And then there's this trial. 
um, so so at some point in summer, um, probably for, for for purely for you know political reasons, uh, hostage taken, trying to apply pressure to to, to the British government. He, Sean Pinner, Ibrahim, he's he's among three members of the Marines, uh, foreign members of the Marines who are put on trial for um, you know quote unquote being mercenaries um, and illegal competence. And the trial obviously ends with their conviction um, and a death sentence. And uh, so they, they end up living basically on death row for several weeks, not knowing what's going to happen. Incredibly psychologically burdensome. And then eventually, after weeks and weeks of this, uh, suddenly they get transferred before they even really know it. Um, and he, he's, he's sitting there one day. And he overhears someone in Russian because he, he speaks a bit of Russian, Aiden, you know, talking about people going home. And he, he described kind of this particular day where he, you, you overhear the guards saying things and you think, don't get my hopes up, don't get my hopes up. No, it can't be true. If I get my hopes up and it isn't what has happening, like it's just going to destroy me. And, you know, being chucked in the back of a bus with his, you know, they're quite brutal apparently when they let him go. They, 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 they duct tape their eyes and, and hands and threw them in the back of a bus and, or a truck, actually, um, and drove them around until eventually um, he realizes, right, I'm in, I'm in Rostov, I'm at Rostov Airport um, in Russia, so they've crossed the border. Um, and, you know, the blindfolds come off, and lo and behold, there's a bunch of Saudi officials saying, you're getting on our plane, don't worry. And that, that, that was the end of the ordeal. Um, so that is uh, that's a very... A truncated form of what Aidan said to me over a very long conversation that we had um, the other afternoon. It was, yeah, a fascinating discussion. We're writing it up now, hoping it's going to be in tomorrow's paper, actually, by the looks of things. So, so do read. And I'm hoping uh, Aidan will join us on the podcast maybe next week to talk us through this in his own words, because it's really something that should be heard from, from him, I think. Thank you, Roland. Dom, did you have a question? Yeah. Hi, Roland. Um, yeah, absolutely horrific stuff. Um, can I ask, did in any way, did he resent his previous involvement with the British media, given, as you're suggesting, it, it, it seems likely now that that was one of the reasons for his treatment? I mean, he didn't, he, he didn't seem to, no. Um, he, 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 he seemed, I mean, when, I remember when I spoke to him in, back in February, when the war was beginning and I kind of asked him, why are you doing this? And he said, well, because, you know, I just think it's, it's important to raise awareness. And I know that you guys, because of how the British media work, you'd be more interested in Brits and the Ukrainian army. And I just think we need more, as much attention as possible. And he said to me then, um, you know, if I get captured, they're probably going to use me for some kind of bullshit propaganda. Um, he, he, he had a very clear sense of what was likely to happen. Um, and he repeated that. He, he remembers repeating that to, to a friend of his when, you know, when he was surrounded in Mariupol. Um, and one of the things he said to me when we were chatting, just arranging this interview, was like, you know, I was, he said, I was, I was sitting there in, you know, in my cell in Donetsk or whatever, thinking about that interview, which was the last one I gave, thinking it all came like everything I predicted happened to me. Um, but remarkably, no. I mean, that is a question we should we we should put to him. I think I think it's a fair question actually because um, I was definitely conscious as soon as he was surrounded in Mariupol. I was thinking about him quite a lot. Cause, you know, I'd done this big interview with him. 
I knew the Russians would look for him. I knew the implications if he was captured. Um, I mean, he was, he, he texted me from Mariupol a couple of times. Um, and I reported it as a Ukrainian soldier because I didn't partly self-censoring, to be honest, I, I was kind of thinking if I say British soldier, whatever in Mariupol, you know, do, do I want to draw more attention to this guy? Cause I'm pretty sure he's going to end up, you know, um, captured. Um, but actually, no, I mean, I mean, in general, even it's one of the fascinating things I found about Aiden, like remarkably few regrets in a way I did ask, I, I literally, I asked him like, are you angry? And he, I don't think he is particularly. Um, I mean, he said, you know, what do I want? I want, I want the war to end as quickly as possible. And I want it to end with Ukraine liberating its territories. You know, his, his, his position on that hasn't changed. He told me he doesn't regret joining up. He doesn't regret, he doesn't regret fighting. Um, he's quite proud of taking part in the Battle of Mariupol. He was quite, he was proud of what the 36th Marines achieved. And, and he, and he was, he was keen to make that point that, you know, okay, okay, Illich style fell before Azov style, but we didn't have a choice, but, you know, we held out for, you know, however long it was, two months, six weeks, um, what, what the Marines and the National Guard and the policemen there did was, was make a big contribution to holding up the Russians. And that helped in the defense of Kiev ultimately and other parts of, of Ukraine. So kind of, he, he, he wouldn't talk about anger. No. I mean, I think he's, um, definitely quite happy to be quite happy to be back in Britain. He's definitely keen to get out to Ukraine again, um, not to fight this time. Um, but he's, he, he definitely, I think sees his, um, his future there. Um, I think he would like to see those people who mistreated him brought to justice, but, but overall remarkably kind of philosophical about the whole thing. I thought. Thanks for that, Roland. I just have one question as well, based off what you were just saying there about him being proud of serving in the Ukrainian army. Did he have any thoughts, critiques, criticisms, particular praise for, from an outsider's perspective of, on, on the Ukrainian armed forces, the soldiers that were fighting, the strategies adopted? I'm just interested in him approaching it from the perspective of, of an outsider, particularly. I mean, he always said, like, from his perspective, like, from the beginning of the war, he was saying, like, I, I don't personally think that we need NATO troops or something. We need training, we need equipment, um, which I think has been borne out. Um, he also said, I mean, I remember, you know, in those weeks before the war and in that, in that conversation, that interview we did in February, um, he was saying, you know, I kind of feel like some of the younger guys in the unit don't grasp how bad this is going to be. They, they don't, because for them, like war is sitting in a trench and maybe once a week a mortar round will come over or something and how this is going to be a full-on conventional you know hell i said well what you know when it actually happened how did it pan out and he said you know what some of the guys i felt i th i thought not much of turned out to be the best guys when push came to shove you know how, how the war kind of really brought out the be the best in all of them um, from his kind of squatty eyes view perspective. And he seemed, you know, he, he, he was, he was very, I think, positive about how his unit performed in the battle, despite, you know, being outgunned, having no choice, being forced back into Mariupol in terms of kind of grand strategy and things. I mean, I think there is this, this question he alluded to, he didn't kind of question the decision 
that much, but he, he did talk several times about how there was this question of whether to break out or not. Like, should should Mariupol be abandoned? And all those troops pulled back to, I don't know, to Zaporizhia or somewhere um, and say that. I mean, that decision was obviously made quite early on that, no, Mariupol will be a fortress. Even if it's surrounded, we're going to defend it and defend and defend because we have to hold up the Russians there. He didn't, I didn't get the sense he was questioning that decision. I kind of got the sense that, you know, everybody kind of made their decision to go along with that decision in a way. But it is, I think, I think, I think there are questions around that and definitely around the whole battle of Mariupol and the battle of the south of Ukraine. There is this wider question about how the Russians had so much success so early. How, how did that break out from Crimea? succeed so well how did they get across the river in Kherson um almost without resistance and all of that and those are questions that Aiden himself didn't raise to me but these are questions that I've heard you know many times from many Ukrainians who are thinking about you know the course of the war and and the bitter fate of Mariupol and you know I mean the 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 Azov guys who were defending Azov Star towards the end in those last kind of televised you know kind of internet press conferences they gave were saying you know we've done our job somebody else hasn't done their job and that that was what they're alluding to how was it that that city ended up besieged and surrounded um i'm conscious that we're coming to the end of our time this afternoon so i'd like to come to you first dom what are your final thoughts well i just think we should keep an eye on what is happening in ukraine with this air battle so we we think russia took delivery of about another 1500 drones from Iran some weeks ago they've launched two big waves in the last fortnight but they are um, some way away from using up those stocks if uh, if those numbers are correct um, if Russia just continues doing what they're doing launching these big sort of multi multi number you know high dozens of, of attacks and having most of them shot down then I, I just it just underlines that they've got nothing else left in the locker and I just I think well they know that and they know we know that and they know the Ukrainians know that so I'm just wondering I'm I'm a little bit cautious about all this talk about Belarus you know as I've said I don't I don't think there's going to be a big thrust from there but what we have seen from Russia throughout this war is is they get as far as they can and then they do something else now that something else has generally not been successful but they they try and change the um, change the dynamic and I I just wonder if these these aerial attacks just aren't working um, there's no sign of Ukraine's spirit being broken by the with the loss of critical infrastructure, and I just wonder if some, something else is uh, is about to come. Thanks for that, Dom. Over to you, Francis. Well, thanks, Claire. I do just want to briefly return to what Dom was talking about at the beginning. This extended interview with Valery Zelushny, the head of the Ukraine's armed forces, and there's there's so much in here that, as Dom said, I really recommend that people read it in full in the Economist, but. Just picking out a few things, he talks about how at the beginning of the war for him, of course, was in 2014, not uh, this year. He's very keen to emphasise that. He talks about how for him, he'd read a lot of books. Indeed, he says, I had graduated from all the academies with a gold medal. I understood everything theoretically, but I did not understand what war really meant. But in eight years of war since then, in 2022, both I and people like me understand it all perfectly well. 
He then goes on and talks about the Russian army. Quite a few insights from him, actually, into how it operates. And he talks about how, for them, they enforced one concept and the idea of the commander, the all-seeing commander who controls everything in the detail. And he says that very quickly he knew the error of that kind of command structure and was effectively, whilst overseeing everything, was operating in a much more flexible and fluid manner. He says he trusts his generals and that he was willing to give them more operational flexibility, which, of course, was absolutely vital for the defence of Kiev and some of the other strategic successes that took place. And as I say, he talks about the trust that he's built and he knows that if a general asks something of him that it really is required. And I would say that that contrasts very strongly with what we've seen from the Russian army since the invasion back in February. He also reflects more deeply on Russian failures and why they happened. So he talks about how they garnered resources for a long time, but even though they spent three and a half, four years building up intensively in terms of people, equipment, ammunition, it still was nowhere near enough. And whilst they planned for three months, they didn't plan beyond that, and that now they're in this very difficult situation as a consequence. But interesting, and I think this is one of the most interesting things he says, is they wanted to take Kiev Militarily, this was the right decision, the easiest way to achieve their goal. I would have done the same. I know Gerasimov well, not personally, of course. There was no way out for him. He concentrated on Donbass to preserve whatever resources he had left. As of today, the situation in Donbass is not easy. But strategically, it is a no-win situation for the Russian army. The most likely thing is they are looking for ways to stop fighting and to get a pause by any means, shelling civilians, leaving our wives and children to freeze to death. They need it for one simple purpose. They need time to gather resources and create new potential so that they can continue to fulfill their goals. And he goes on, says they're doing this in this task in parallel with another, which is to not let the Ukrainians regroup and strike themselves. And he says that this is the, the, the great challenge for them is that why they, of course, have been going up in um, lots of battles at the moment that appear and I say it's the semblance of being fixed whereas actually there is very very fierce fighting going on at the moment and then he concludes by uh, talking about his strategic priorities uh, moving forward so he says the, the, the first of all they need to hold the line and not lose any more ground it's crucial he says because I know that it is 10 to 15 times harder to liberate than not to surrender I know sorry Our task now is to hold on. Our task is to monitor very clearly with the help of our partners what is going on, where they're getting ready. This is our fundamental strategic task. The second important strategic task for us is to create reserves and prepare for the war, which may take place in February or at best in March and at the worst at the end of January. It may not start in Donbass, but in the direction of Kiev from the direction of Belarus. I do not rule out in the southern direction as well. So again, an interesting insight there that he believes that there is going to be very much a renewed offensive. But whether, as Don was saying, that actually is, is towards Kiev and whether the Russians will be capable of that remains to be seen. But nonetheless, they are expecting quite a significant counteroffensive. And then lastly, he says his third but very important task is connected with the first, which is holding the lines and positions, and with the second, about accumulating resources, uh, and that is missile defence and air defence. And he talks about how that's a real priority for them in terms of defending the critical infrastructure, which we've seen attacked 
not only in recent weeks, but of course today, as we're speaking now, these strikes are taking place on Kyiv. And so a very interesting article, as I say, he talks about all sorts of other subjects as well, about how Russian mobilization for him has actually worked, that it's been more successful than many people thought in terms of gathering fresh troops. He said they're not particularly effective troops, but nonetheless, they are 200,000 fresh soldiers. And he offers us, say, all sorts of strategic insights into the Russian mentality and into his priorities. Now, of course, with any kind of interview like this, you have to take it with a pinch of salt because it is designed for an international audience to consume. But actually, I think he is quite honest here. I think he reflects on some things that Ukraine perhaps has not done as well, or at least the challenges that they have faced. And he also offers some quite honest reflections on where the Russians have been more um, successful than expected. So an interesting piece and one that undoubtedly will be one we'll want to return to as we look to what happens in the new year and in the months afterwards to see whether this counteroffensive really does happen as he predicted. Thank you for that, Francis. Finally, over to you, Roland. I mean, I think um, kind of at Aidan's request, and one of the things he, he really, one of the reasons he gave me this latest interview and he said what he wanted to emphasise is that he's he's relatively lucky. He's He's been exchanged. He's got out. Most of the guys... Uh, most of the 36th battalion, sorry, 36th brigade, are still in Russian prisons, still, still, you know, facing daily beatings, still being subject to this, you know, horrific kind of treatment. And he he was very keen that the world remember that there's a lot of Ukrainian soldiers still being held in these conditions, um, and and and, and he, there there is a sense perhaps that you know those people who who were lost in Mariupol early on have have been a little bit forgotten. So just a, a reminder there, there are a great many, a great many people still being held. Before we go, a request to you, our listeners. You've stuck with us for over 200 episodes now. Episodes we never wanted to have to make, hoping like you that this terrible war would end this year. In that time, you've heard a lot from us. But as 2022 comes to a melancholy close, we want to hear from you, your voices and reflections on the war in Ukraine and what it means to you. Perhaps you're a Ukrainian following the war from another country, a citizen of Kyiv who wakes up to air raid sirens, a soldier who has fought on the front line and is recovering in hospital. Or perhaps you knew little about Ukraine before the war began, but have been following it closely from afar from Australia, America or Canada, to name just a few countries where we know tens of thousands of you tune in to us every day. Maybe you've volunteered for a charity or are a teacher trying to educate the next generation about this terrible conflict. Whoever you are, if you've listened to us this year, we want to hear your thoughts and about your experiences. To get in touch, please record a short audio file. You can do this really easily via your voice memo app on most smartphones and send it to our usual address podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. Whilst we won't be able to feature all of them, as always, we will listen to every message. We look forward to hearing and learning from you. Thank you and see you on Monday. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings you stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. We're especially interested to hear where you're listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.